Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings, where we are reading Marguerite Young's Angel in the Forest. A Pilgrim's Progress is where we had our first chapter that was too long to read in one setting. So, this is part two. I am enjoying some Mother's Day tea from Harney and Sons. Really, Harney and Sons makes like the best tea mixtures. Um, <clears throat> I've had several. But consistently, I really like theirs. So I've really gotten into this tea culture and collecting teapots and cups and saucers and stuff. So I'm drinking out of my, which one is this one? My Dorchester. Oh, this is an Ansley. Oh, okay. So I do have an Ansley now. All right, this is an Ansley teacup and saucer. Very nice. I've had a, I, we've been going to flea markets and stuff, and just people don't collect these things anymore, so I've been running across all this uh, ch uh, China. Um, and the one, I think the one that was just, I didn't really didn't think it was, well, it's a little chipped, because I'd, I'd get these teacups to drink out of them. I'm not getting them to collect or resale or anything like that so I did find one I just thought was adorable by Noritake the Japanese ones are really just very um delicate and fine oh it's just just gorgeous um so I have so that was my second one but that one was from the 1930s so I was just totally shocked that you know the china even was in such good condition uh the cup was a little little chipped, but the saucer was fine, but that was the only two I could find at the time. If I find a better cup down the road, then I'll replace it. But Yeah, I was a little disappointed in the tea-for-one sets that I liked, um, because a lot of them, I think, are just made for show, and I really wanted mine to drink out of. So I've had to... So I'm kind of backed off and doing more of the teacup and saucer. Okay, so we left off on page 99. Life, and we're with Owen. We're, we're uh, reading about the life of Robert Owen and how he came to uh, have this philosophy um, following Rousseau and different things about, um, I guess, kind of socialism, uh, socialism utopia that he wants to build. He thinks that this can happen. Life at Manchester had, after all, its charms and no catastrophe but one when a mercenary suitor sought both the hand of Mr. Drinkwater's eldest daughter and the management of Mr. Drinkwater's cotton mill. Robert Owen, hearing of the proposed alliance of marriage with finance, resigned immediately, and perhaps a bit prematurely, for the lady gave her hand to a less ambitious gentleman. The change, however, was advantageous. Robert Owen, continue, continuing to climb the financial ladder by leaps and bounds, was not the world his apple then. There need have been nothing to disturb his peace." He might have hung around in the Manchester club rooms the rest of his life, theorizing, arguing with ghosts. As he acquired prestige in cotton circles, however, he began to urge publicly that Parliament should investigate the condition of labor in cotton mills, their sad kingdom within the kingdom. In 1799, in his twenty-ninth year, walking on Glasgow Green one day, Robert Owen had no eye for any husband-hunting lady, but only for an old washwoman with her skirts pinned up to her knobby knees. Gently he played at moving his finger his figure on the social chessboard, a mere shift of circumstance, and she would have been seated on a throne of ebony with her skirts extended like a satin flood, or like the river of Leth, and a queen would have been bent double beating clothes. 
and no one the wiser. Yet, how prove his thesis that man is solely the creature of his circumstance? He might become, in spite of himself, another helpless visionary, a poet spouting beautiful words. As Robert Owen was wrapped in this somber, disquieting thought, however, reality touched him on the shoulder, in the person of a Miss Spears, who had long since rejected him as a possible husband. Generously, she introduced him to her companion, a lady clothed in funeral black from head to foot, yet charming. This was Caroline Dale, daughter of David Dale, the well-known merchant and owner of New Lenark, cotton mills, and various banking institutions, preacher, also, at dissenting churches throughout the Scottish kingdom. Robert Owen was perhaps more interested in the father than the daughter at this point, knowing little of women except as customers in business. They met often at Glasgow Green through a series of happy accidents well planned by Caroline. Unfortunately, or so the lady thought, Robert's only subject of interest was cotton, though to her there was nothing so simply and austerely effective as black silk. Besides, <clears throat> she was always in mourning for somebody. Romance seemed to lag under a burden of the most awful statistics. The number of cotton bolts, the number of workers, the number of dead souls at New Lenark. Caroline was vague. She could not say what the win winters were like at New Lenark. She always fled to Glasgow like the birds in autumn. Her father had cared for the soul of man, which must be exercised, but the body was a more difficult matter, and he was... And he was not God. She did not know the number of beds and whether they were occupied both day and night by shifts of workers. She could have spoken more specifically of cages of evil birds in Babylon. Not that her heart was narrow. Discouraged by this man's everlasting interest in business and more business, Caroline sent Miss Spears finally as her emissary to convey the delicate information that her heart was intricately involved. Should he not pursue his suit, she must remain a maid unwedded forever, mother only to her little sisters, whom she had always mothered. A rose unplucked, a song unsung. The idea of marriage had not occurred to Robert Owen, who thought himself unattractive to ladies. Losing no time, he went to New Lenark to inspect the business and was unfavorably impressed by nothing but a church steeple on the mill wall most precariously balanced in the condition of the workers. David Dale had refused to take on any partner who objected to his who objected to his church steeple, for if they did not see eye to eye on that, they would agree in nothing else. David Dale had been, though superior to the average cotton lord, a much absent, far too busy riding from church to church. Robert Owen purchased in company with his partners the new Lenark cotton mill. It was a strange ceremony involving bride, church steeple, and mill when in the Charlotte Street mansion in Glasgow, September 1799, Carolyn Dale, daughter of an old Scots fundamentalist, became the wife of Robert Owen, Unitarian and perhaps atheist. David Dale united the two. To this unbeliever who was now in possession of his mill, his church steeple, and his daughter, he said, Thou needest to be very right, for thou art very positive. It was his first and final word of warning. <laughs> that's awesome you must be very right you better be right because you are very positive on their wedding journey as they passed the thatched cottage where chickens scratched the door robert owen informed his bride that he was taking her to a place like this for there would be no ghostly powers in the world to come caroline was relieved when their carriage stopped at green Hayes, the house planned by the elder de quincey who had not lived to see the last nail driven there were ivory cherubim who might have been billiard balls chasing velvet butterflies down endless corridors and in a small office among, among mortality rates robert owen lived caroline thought much of the disappointed builder the elder de Kinsey, at ideal idyllic green haze they spent their honeymoon discussing the erection of a new moral world from which society's unhappiness would have been removed forever 
To be consistent with his objective, Robert Owen said, they must go to New Lanark. Mere theorists were clouds without water, carried about by every wind, trees without fruit. The word without the act was nothing. In January, down a bleak road over the Scottish moors, an unpopulous district where the gorse stood out like dead men's bones, they came to New Lanark and the spacious Braxfield, a house blackened by clouds and whitened by snow. This house, of which the interior was becomingly appointed, had been built by none other than the murderous Lord Braxfield, the laughing hangman. Robert Louis Stevenson depicts him in the mad character of Vere of Hermiston. The laughing hangman, the king's servant, has sentenced every petty culprit, culprit, every pilferer of ribbon, every pilferer of fallen twigs, to be hanged by the neck until dead. And the more corpses there were, the merrier was he. As for the former hostess, Lady Braxfield, Mrs. Vere, although her husband was a rotund murderer and disdainful of all nature less coarse than his own she had put on the texts of her divinity in the morning with her clothes as a kind of protection against the ways of cain and abel's garden braxfield was destined now to be the scene of even greater cosmic and domestic rifts than these where formerly a skeleton had dangled from every tree would be effected a program for the regeneration of the human race but in the flesh it was not necessary that Robert Owen be eyewitness even to the visible sorrow of the gruesome sight of children filing through the mill-gates at grey dawn with their cold coffee-mugs clutched in their hands like bird-claws. He might have dwelled at a safe distance from the tragic mills. Immediately, he declared his needs. However, before he could take his hat off, he would have to have five hundred bathtubs, toilet facilities for a large population, many beds, ample bedding, a chair at every machine, and all the externals necessary for the improvement of an environment." He would demonstrate visibly, he said, the connection between universal happiness and practical mechanics. He would erect immediately a cosmos to rival the flickering light on Mount Sinai. He would show that man is the best of all possible machineries, a being responsive to the best care. Human confusion seemed to him not necessary in the nature of things, nor death a fountain of youth from which the dying man rises as a golden dove covered with silver paint. He would believe no more than what his eye could see, reality of the fact that the enslavement of the masses was accepted by the cheerless, cheerful manufacturers as a principle handed down from the Garden of Eden, reality of the fact that the cotton mills were receptacles for living human skeletons, almost disrobed of intellect, whereas the business was now conducted, they lingered out a few years of miserable existence, acquiring every bad habit which could be disseminated throughout the body of society. The United Cotton Lords, although perhaps divided on every other subject, were busily signing the death warrant of the strength, morals, and happiness of an entire population, including themselves. Christian justice had been strangely blind and deaf, allured by harpers harping on a sea of glass and other non-existent items, to ignore the suppression of a large percentage of human beings forever. It was an old story. New Lanark was to be conducted on humanitarian principles only. From the beginning, Robert Owen said, used the word government instead of management, as he had no wish to be enthroned himself, being in the act of disenthroning all despotic powers. His partners fortunately seemed interested in that all-engrossing topic— profit. As long as the golden tides came in, they were willing, apparently, to give free rein to his imagination. If he liked, he could visualize the world upside down in the North Pole at the South, while the status quo was not disturbed, of course. Robert Owen had, however, to overcome the distrust of the workers themselves. Why should they have faith in the promises of any cotton lord? They felt that they were being destroyed in the race for power. As change had disrupted their lives previously, they were suspicious of change. They were without hope of any improvement, in fact, but the second coming of one Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, who would take into his arms the maimed, the halt, the blind, the desecrated, even the drunk. 
because they had been forced by terrible circumstance, because they had not meant to be what they were, because they would have been themselves in a greener valley. There were in all two thousand souls at New Lanark. To the world, Robert Owen said nothing but indentured paupers, deserving of the whip to themselves, the last of Scottish pride, the last of the old border warriors. Some as immigrants from the Isle of Skye had survived shipwreck only to be confronted by death and life. Almost all were suffering from these characteristics which usually attend extreme poverty and despair of any good. To their enemy they seemed their own worst enemies, deserving of extinction, yea, suicidal. So it's interesting that Robert Owen is doing this back in the 1700s. And they're still doing research now that shows that poverty and those sorts of things, trauma, different things, uh, cause changes in the brain and causes you to act differently and against your own best interests. Robert Owen wrote for the New Lenark community, a constitution to guarantee life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to all. They should think charitably of their neighbors regarding differences of creeds and opinions. Argument, drawn from the pages of Robert Burns, a drunk with a vision, a man's a man for a that, and the wee, sleekit, trembling field mouse is the glory of God. Robert Owen sought out the leaders among the workers and explained his plans to them. Gradually, step by step, he was able to enlist their cooperation and confidence in his motives. When he came, the village was like a pigsty, the streets muddy, dunghills piled in front of every low-browed door, parts of buildings torn away. He instituted, first of all, a clean-up program. The streets were paved, the dunghills removed, and doors provided where the old ones had been used as firewood. Every night, watchmen walked the streets, reporting those who were drunk or disorderly. As bathtubs had been installed, all were urged to bathe at least once a week, for cleanliness is next to godliness, though this is not always the case. A committee performed a weekly inspection of houses, in spite of the loud lamentations of women, who objected to the prying eyes of bug-hunters, as they were called, and washing their dirty linen in public. There were other dis disciplines. Children were not to be beaten. Prying eyes of bug-hunters, who knew no reticence, inspected these along with pots, pans, and sheets. The greatest catch on the marriage market throughout the British industrial kingdom at that date was a widow with a brood of children. With as many children as he could get into his clutches and their income from the mills, a man could take a little swig to forget his sorrows, could drink himself to death if necessary, and Nulonarka, both lovelorn adventurers and pigs, were ejected from the widow's parlor. Here, if nowhere else, the old pub was about to be boarded up, about to be covered over with vines. A constructive employment was found for all adults. Infants were purchased from their parents at the salary they had been they had, had before and turned loose into a meadow. Not even Rome was built in a single day, however, and for a while the population seemed, in spite of many changes, to persist unchanged. Big heads, stooped shoulders, pendulous stomachs, spindle legs, dim eyesight, and a general inclination to die before the age of forty. But only for a while. A curious device was used to encourage cooperation at New Lanark. No passage underground nor maze, but it achieved a good result. A block of wood was hung in front of every worker at his machine, each side a different color, which would announce what had been his conduct during the previous day. Black was bad, blue was average, yellow was good, and white was excellent. Each department took a book of character, the books changing six times a year, but permanently preserved in the company archives. The act of setting down the number of color in the book of character, never to be effaced, might be likened, Robert Owen said, to the supposed recording angel marking the good and bad deeds of the poor, disparaged human nature, which was, however, the subject of neither praise nor blame. 
As time went on, the black and blue gave place to yellow and white, for the character of the people of New Lenark had improved visibly. There was, according to one report, a gradual evolution of his, Robert Owen's, wooden flowers from the satanic to the angelic hue. To suspend wooden blocks by wire threads was harmless and might contribute to the flow of their profit, the partners believed. To reduce working hours from 13 to 10 and three-fourths when the average mill day was 17 hours, and to increase wages above any high-water mark ever heard of, seemed both paradoxical and dangerous. The partners, Lancashire men, Lancashire men, presented their junior member with a silver salver in recognition of a return on their investment, but suggested that he give up his many charities. Two or three years, and Robert Owen purchased the mill with Scottish associates whom he believed to be friendly to the cause of labor. They showed themselves to be less generous than their predecessors. They objected to the liberal scale of wages, shortened hours of labor, schoolrooms, bathtubs, and other airy projects as yet unrealized by this pale Don Quixote. Perhaps their suspicions reflected the disruptions caused by the greater, that greater challenger to the status quo, Napoleon. The old order seemed threatened, and in their terror the partners did not know but that there might be some charmed value in the most insignificant thing, such as a silver spoon or salver. Should all the scattered forces be united, what would become of England and the old way of life? Remember, people have to stay poor, and so the rich can be rich. Ireland had always been a bone of contention, for example, but profitable to English interests. Because of the everlasting quarrel between Irish Catholics and Irish Protestants, internal unification had been impossible. In 1798, these bodies had coalesced in a movement of rebellion against the English. The argument is the nature of Jesus Christ's body soon, reasserted, soon reasserting itself. Catholic and Protestant betrayed each other. Lord Edward Fitzgerald, disguised as a woman, was betrayed by a perceptive woman named Reynolds. Such Irish extravagances had contributed to English national welfare. With Ireland ready to join France, England would have been open to invasion. Napoleon, the dark angel, had risen from the flood. The suppressed elements were now emerging with the result of a perpetual chaos. In 1805, the redoubtable Mr. Pitt, in alliance with the deity, was made Secretary of War to pursue Napoleon by land and sea, wherever he should have the temerity to show himself. Soon the poker-faced Beelzebub, the Prince of Darkness, appeared at the dinner table of the poor Queen of Württemberg, daughter of George III of England. She had to seem, in spite of herself, a charming hostess. She complained that he was not so much Beelzebub, a fallen angel, as an indigenous devil, a mad dog. Though mad George III barked like a dog at Windsor, it was said that Napoleon was the mad dog loose in Europe. Near Cairo, he had gained the Battle of the Pyramids, where pharaohs slept through it all, and was always storming empty citadels and caused much suffering, and left not even a blade of grass in parts of Germany. He knew no bounds. He had exalted himself to be emperor of a new Roman Empire and king of kings, at a magnificent ceremony, had placed upon his head a wreath of hammered laurel leaves, while the poor pope of the true church had had to no function but to be a spectator. This seemed to the Protestant English the last insolence, the last straw. As Napoleon's armies ever on the march surrounded many a sultan, many a king in Europe, George the Third continued to whine like an old dog and kenneled at Windsor, for perhaps the dog was harassed by fleas as he by spirits. Mr. Pitt's war cry, King, Church, and Constitution, was heard in every drawing room in England. Civilization was at stake. Mr. Pitt, apologist for Malthus, for Malthus, died within a year of Napoleon's triumph at Austerlitz, as did Mr. Fox's great rival, who had embraced the principles of Rousseau. It was necessary to change horses in the middle of the stream. Two new men were soon in harness, and both 
allied to the gilded carriage of the gilded past, the able Lord Cas Castlery. Yeah, Castlery, as War Minister and able Mister Canning as Secretary of Foreign Affairs. The war progressed disastrously. Our world affording more material for Dante's hell than for Dante's heaven. Napoleon, having in mind an heir to his immortal glory, abandoned Josephine, who was sterile and loved him, in favor of Marie Louise, Louise, and his seed assured in futurity was off to Moscow, where he was greeted by tongues of fire on every rooftop ablaze. Impossible to stay there. Through blinding snowstorms dogged by Cossacks, Napoleon's armies retreated from Russia. An entire regiment was devoured by red-eyed wolves. Prussia, encouraged by Russian victory, rose to its feet, and France was tired of wars. Napoleon's power seemed broken at last. Napoleon was dispatched to Elba, there to live as the most illusory despot surrounded by stars like golden pomegranates, there to imagine what worlds he pleased. The new map of Europe was being drawn to maintain what was called the balance of power, and France was sending back to their owners the marble statues which Napoleon had carried off with him. When full in the midst, like a thunderbolt out of the blue, came the news that the little emperor was landed on the French coast and was rallying his old legions around him. The war, with all its inconveniences, was not over, the celebration a bit premature. While King George accompanied the music of the spheres, Europe was made once more a charnel house. Twenty-six workers in the arsenal at Woolwich combined their resources such as they had never had in peacetime to purchase equal shares in a bull and a cow. This was a notable attempt at socialism, perhaps the very beginning of the British labor movement. Otherwise, industries other than munitions being closed, the workers were starving acutely. Lord Castlereagh worked fourteen hours a day to win not only the foreign war, but the war against the workers at home. The nation prospered and victory came. When the Duke of Wellington's news of victory at Waterloo was sent, it was couched in such shy, hesitant, unboastful language. Composite clubmen were stunned into silence, believing it was Noni who had won the day. Wellington, having been ascertained, however, the victor was showered with massive pearls, it being enough to make the head swim when one considers the contribution of oysters to this world's progress. The ladies of England sent to him a bronze statue of Achilles without the large heel. Apparently, Robert Owens was such a smaller concern than either Napoleon's or Wellington's. For what duller than, during the great struggle of deadlocked powers, to be shut inside a model mill town or lectured empty halls? Even George III, on whom the outer world could make but little impression, for he was his own harassed star, seemed less remote from reality than this manufacturer of durable cloth and mothy philosophies of human progress. When his second set of patterns attempted to destroy the constructive program of New Lanark and to return the mills to serfdom, Robert Owen offered to purchase the property. They refused to sell, partly because they knew a rich vein and partly because they believed him to be Napoleon's partner. Robert Owen, as he could make no compromise, was forced to resign. Immediately he drew up plans for the further development of his schemes at New Lanark and its purlieus, the surrounding earth, as if most sinister thought he intended to return. The years 1813 through 1814 he spent in London, urging, in the middle of a war-torn world, the complete reorganization of society, and all the business and pleasure of life. For the moment it is enough to say that he succeeded in interesting new investors, a flock of Pacific, Pacific Quakers, and not one money-worshipper in the lot. William Allen, John Walker, Joseph Fox, Joseph Foster, and Michael Gibbs, who was to become Lord Mayor of London. Jeremy Bentham was a silent, perhaps sardonic partner.
During Robert Owen's absence in London, the partners of New Lanark had spread abroad a vicious rumor that the New Lanark mills were gone to rack and ruin, so far as profit was concerned, for such had been his quixotic management, sacrificing business to loutish human nature. By this device, they hoped to buy the property in half its value, when they should be in a position to take the chairs away from the workers and to fill the schoolroom with bolts of cotton. They had already arranged a dinner party at which to celebrate Robert Owen's defeat. The persistence of Robert Owen's bitters, however, resulted in victory, the partners giving up at 650000 Great was the rejoicing throughout that countryside when first word came that Robert Owen was to continue his good work at New Lanark. All people awaited, in fact, the second coming of one Robert Owen, who would have his crown of diamonds in heaven above, or at least his reward. According to the account in the Glasgow newspaper, the Society of Freemasons and almost all townspeople met him in the burg of Old Lanark, where nearly every house was lighted with a candle at the window as, an old, as on Christmas Eve. The people took the horses from his carriage and a flag being draped in front drew him and his astonished Quaker partners along amid the wild plaudits of multitudes until they reached his house at Braxfield where his lady, dearest Caroline, waited him with her accustomed smile. Robert Owen, when he spoke, objected that the workers had tried to harness themselves to his carriage. The workers of the world had been treated like horses long enough, he announced. For days, the report continues. There was animation at New Lanark, the one mill town where machinery had been employed for the benefit of the labor as well as the investor. The one mill town where had been adopted a positive view of human life, its origin, and destiny. Dearest Caroline had all she desired. Her Robert was a good man, and if he would but walk in the straight and narrow way of God, which was indeed a maze with harmony at its center, then her happiness would have been a cup full and overflowing, both loaf of bread and rose of Sharon, both heaven and earth. She found herself in dangerous straits between the devil and the deep blue sea, in view of her creed as a Calvinist, and her love of that godless man, Robert Owen. All right. Thank you for listening.